questions. That we were, all of us, very impressed with the um, amount of effort that people made. I think everybody, we had a big pile of questions. So I think everybody did them, which is appropriate because we asked you to. And uh, uh, we'll do some tonight. And uh, maybe if it works out, we'll do some more tomorrow morning. Um, and they covered a vast amount of territory from practice questions to philosophical questions to personal questions. Um, and what we did was we, we just took some of them uh, that seemed like a good place to start. And uh, so we'll start from there and um, take turns because we can't even, we can't turn the microphones all on at the same time. <laughs> We get feedback, so it's kind of like a talking stick. As long as I'm talking, I've got a piece of paper in my hand, nobody else can say anything. So, <laughs> so you could turn your mic on. <laughs> so we'll talk a little bit, though. And I'm apologizing in advance if we don't get up to your question. So uh, we'll do the best that we can. This is a question that says, uh, last night Mary shared some of her personal journey. It was helpful with my own questions. Could Sylvia share some of her story? Could Norman? Um, uh, So I will tell you a a short version of my story. Because I I could tell the whole story, but specifically I think it's the story that people want to know is how... uh, how has your spiritual life emerged, particularly around this question of um, two lineages? So I remembered a, an event that had happened uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, there was a um, conference of Western Buddhist teachers. By that, it means people not... Um, that Western Buddhist means generally the people who were not born in Buddhist countries like all of us who uh, have, as adults, taken on Buddhist practice and study and teaching. So there have been several conferences, and we had a conference of Western Buddhist teachers at um, uh, Mount Madonna. Were you there, Mary? Were you there, Norman? So about, uh, you know, there were, there were 60 or 70 people there. We were together all the time. So I'm just uh, ascertaining you were there with me. So you may remember that in the very end, there was a sharing circle. Uh, and everybody shared what was for them uh, the most uh, important thing that they wanted to say at the end of some four or five days of us being together. And so they're going around the circle, going around the circle. And uh, I was thinking about the fact, by that time, the, the fact that I am a Jew now teaching a Buddhist practice and had, it had been brought to my attention um, because I didn't think about it very much, but then when I began to teach, people came and said to me, how did you interpolate uh, this practice with your being a Jew? And I hadn't even thought about that that was a question before, but it, now that I was in a position, people were asking me. So there was an important thing for me to talk about, and I was thinking about how am I going to say this, and how am I going to talk about it? And the, the questions are going around, people are sharing around the circle, and the person right before me 
set up what I was going to say. He, given what he said, I had to say what I said. He said, um, he said, I consider myself so lucky to have found this path of the Buddha and so fortunate to uh, have been able to study meditation. His actually his lineage is Zen. He's uh, done really some very important work in terms of peace work internationally. And he said, I consider myself so tremendously fortunate. He said, sometimes I think about my life and I think, here I am, uh, a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn, and how did I grow up to be this? So it was a setup, like a volleyball shot, you know, <laughs> because uh, the only thing I could say is I also feel so blessed and benefited by this practice that I have been studying and practicing since 1977. It's made a huge difference in my life. I'm tremendously grateful for it as a way of, I think as a way of clarifying my mind, purifying my heart. I'm tremendously grateful for it. And I started out a nice Jewish girl from Brooklyn. And I still am. And what I expected, I guess, was that everybody would notice or make a fuss, and nobody did a thing. It just went on to the next person after me. And here I thought I'd come out in the middle of all of these 60 or 70 colleagues, Buddhists, and I'm not sure what I thought they would say. But I I know I had some, uh, some concern about it, that coming out. And the following day, I was talking to my friend um, and teacher, Rabbi Zalman Schachter, who I have known for a very long time, and I'm privileged to call a friend as well as a teacher. And we were talking on the telephone, and I told him, listen, I had to tell you about this experience yesterday, and I told the story just as I told you. And I said, uh, you know, the whole thing is, uh, I expected someone would say something about it. That was my big announcement, and it didn't... Nothing happened. And he said, that's because it was a no karma event. He said, is it because you know what you are? It's not a problem. So I want to share that with you just because I like that so much. He said, it's a no karma event. You weren't conflicted about it, so nobody else was. Really, that's the story. I am a nice Jewish girl from Brooklyn. I grew up, uh, I was born in 1936 in Brooklyn to people who like being Jews and uh, had a big extended family. And uh, it was a hard time uh, at that time, 36, to get born and into the 40s. There was a great deal of anti-Semitism in the United States and especially on the East Coast. And I, you know, I heard uh, people make bad remarks to me and call me names because I was a Jew. And I actually think it didn't make a very permanent, lasting, upsetting except for me to be very sensitive about never using some kind of a slur on anybody, because it's painful. I think I was very much supported by the fact that my family loved me a lot. They loved being Jews. They were proud of it. I would think of them as um, observant people, because everybody was. You lived in in a Jewish community, and people did things that were Jewish things. They lived in a certain way. They kept holidays. They kept the Sabbath day, 
My mother was very strict about we didn't do laundry on the Sabbath day, but nor did we do it on Sunday out of respect for our neighbors. Because, uh, And I actually was very touched by that, that you didn't do it on anybody's Sabbath day. Uh, my family were very strong political, uh, political believers, believers in political change. My grandparents came to this country because they believed in democracy. Uh, in my family, voting was a religious act. We went all to the polls together. Just as you go to church together, we all walked together. I went and walked with my mother every year, every voting year. As a child, I stood in the booth with her. I watched her pull levers. I have never not voted in an election as an adult because that was so clear to me that that was part of what you did, as not almost like a religious practice, but as a religious practice. And I grew up, I went, to, uh, I went to public schools, I went to Jewish summer camps. It was in the time of people having dreams about moving to Israel and building a new state. I was a little too young to be a pioneer in Israel, but my, uh, the people I looked up at towards were doing that. When I was 12 years old, uh, I sat on the floor of my living room uh, with my whole family around, all listening to the partition vote in the United Nations. And uh, when they came to the vote, Pakistan, no, no, P, 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 not Peru. What's the, what's the city, what's the country in, in South America that starts? Paraguay. Paraguay votes yes, which was the deciding vote. Paraguay votes yes. You see, if I tell you that story, I'll start to cry. My mother started to cry. They, the, on the radio, you, can, you could hear them say, uh, this is all, this is radio in 1948, we switched now to Jerusalem, and you could hear them uh, singing the national anthem uh, in crackly, staticky radio, and my family all crying, not knowing what to do with themselves. And that's how I grew up. I grew up having uh, relatives that had survived the Holocaust come through our house on their way to making new lives as chicken farmers in New Jersey or farmers in Saskatoon and Saskatchewan in Canada. And uh, it was never a question. I went, I went, to, a, I went to college. I uh, married. I had children. I uh, got a social work degree. My family was growing up, my, the children that I raised as Jews, because it never occurred to me not to be. that I, I mean, I just was. That was one of the things you do. And in my 30s and early 40s, I would have said about myself, never occurred to me that I was anything but a Jew or wanted to be one. It, it, it was clear to me that um, as meditation began to be uh, available in the larger culture, first with TM, than with every other possible meditation in the world. My husband used to go every weekend to another meditation enlightenment weekend. And he'd come home and he'd say, so you should do this, it's great. And I'd go and I'd do it, and it would be okay, but it wouldn't grab me particularly, it'd be okay. Uh, but it was clear to me that uh, I never questioned about my, my context, but I knew that uh, someday in my life I would have to deal with difficult things. It became clear to me that however wonderful my life was at that point, and it was, and I had a family that I loved, I had good fortune with my children. I loved what I did for work. 
And I was very frightened that it became clear to me. You know, remember this afternoon when I said the Buddha had his enlightenment, his wake-up experience, when he looked around and he said, there is old age, sickness, and death. It's all loss. And what are we going to do about it? I think mine was in my 30s. And I began to think, what am I going to do about it? I won't be able to stand it if X or Y or Z will happen to me, and X and Y and Z will happen to all of us. And then all of a sudden, here came all these meditations around, and my husband going to all of them, try this cell, try that cell. So I tried, and then he said, uh, he went off, he did a couple of weeks of Vipassana practice, he came back, he said, this is it, cell. So I went and did that. (laughs) And uh, and leaving out all the chapter and verse, because I don't take up the whole time, it was it. And I didn't have any spectacular thing happen to me. I was not freed from my neurotic anxieties. I didn't stop being anxious. Um, I didn't have any brilliant moments of transcendence. I listened to my teachers talking about the possibility of the sure heart's release, and I believed it. And it just appealed to me very much. And I never left. So I went home, I went home, resumed my life, I resumed my family, did my work for many years. And I went on retreats and I came home and I went on retreats and I came home. And, you know, many, many years later when I began teaching in a public way, sometimes if I give a lecture, my now quite adult children will come with me and people will ask, you know, how did you manage with four children to go on retreats? I said, well, you know, I didn't go on any very long retreats. And I didn't go away and, and practice in Asia like many of my teachers did. Uh, I said I, I, I managed to continue my family. I interpolated my re- retreats into my family life in a way that no one noticed. And uh, then uh, every time after the talk, my children said to me, we noticed. <laughs> so, uh, but, but they all grew up, and they grew up okay, and they appreciate what I did. And, let me see if I can do the rest of it in three minutes. I continued to do retreats. I uh, began after a while to really be able to focus my attention. Some time later, I, uh, I would say two things were very important. At some point in my meditation practice, it turned out that I actually have a fairly good capacity for uh, concentration. There was a long period of time in which I had some very energetic, uh, uh, quite altered states that were actually quite remarkable. And they seemed to me quite mysterious. And what was very clear to me when I had those experiences is I tried to describe them for myself and then to describe them for my teachers. And I would describe them in biblical metaphor. This seems to me like what it must have been in the primordial mix before the separation of heaven and earth. This seems to me to be the experience in Eden. This seems to me to be the separation of Adam and Eve. Different kinds of energetic events in my body. And I realized that that's the iconography of my heart. It's written in me. When I describe things, I describe them in those words. More important than those mysterious and exotic experiences energetic events which lasted for a while and now are not what I cultivate, I began to have some periods of profound peace for which I found my natural and immediate response 
was to give thanks and praise and to say then in the language and the prayer life that I knew as a child, those people who share my prayer idiom will know that when a thing like that happens that you could not imagine would have happened, you say, Baruch atah ya Eloheinu ruach ha'olam shehachiyano v'kiyamano v'higiyano lazman hazeh which means praise be the creator of all things, sovereign of everything, that has kept me in life and sustained me and allowed me to live until this day. So it began a time for the uh, restoration spontaneously in me of the prayer life that I had as a child and the blessing life that I had 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 as a child, which I had left. Um, not because I had left being a Jew, left because of my life, left because I had done it as part of ritual practice as a child, but without particular connection, and as an adult had forgotten that it was written in my heart. And when my life again began to be a cause for blessing, um, that was the natural language to talk about it in. And so I've had quite a remarkable last 20 years, Um, I don't actually think that I have interpolated two traditions. I uh, I think I'm a Jew who's had the great gift of studying what the Buddha taught. And um, I don't think I came back to Judaism. I think I woke up in it um, and that I never left. I'm actually, you know... um, I was a nice Jewish girl from Brooklyn, then I still am. (laughs) Go Norman. <laughs> I wish I could hear more of your story. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> My story's not so interesting. Uh, when I was little... Uh, we grew up, you know, with my grandparents, lived in their house. And my grandfather, from the first I could remember, was sick and very, very mean about it, you know, because he was always feeling bad. So the children were very hushed around him. And then he died, and, and, and his death was not, I mean, it, there was a, that, it, those were the days when you kept the children out of that. So it was just mysterious. And I think, I don't really remember this, but now that I'm looking back on it, I'm thinking that I probably, this affected me a lot, I think. Because I remember my parents were very worried. I was a very brooding, you know, dark, strange little boy. (laughs) And and still am. <laughs> so, so my parents were very worried about this, and you know, wondered what they could do about it. But they didn't, they didn't know what they could do, so they just sort of tolerated it. And and, uh, and I was very good friends with my grandmother, who was from Europe, and we hung out a lot. And uh, so, uh, and, I, and then when I was a little older, I became very religious. And we also had a, a Jewish community that was the center of our. Uh, ritual and social life. We, we didn't live in, uh, like in Brooklyn, where there were lots of Jews living together. We lived in a small town where there were 
Jews scattered here and there. So we all our neighbors and all the kids I went to school with were uh, not Jews, but uh, our synagogue community was the center of my parents' social life and all that we did all the things and had a kosher home and, and, and like Sylvia it was very much that's what just what you do you know it's, uh, it's just that we do that that's what, who we are what we are there's no kind of question about it or thinking about it or is this a good idea is this a bad idea there was, that was an unthinkable thought that was just this is what you did and this is what we are and, and, and if we anyway if we tried not to be somebody would tell us we were anyway and make us be this so we might as well do it and find solace in it and, and, and some strength. So, and I liked it. I, I really enjoyed being religious, and I was very really would go to synagogue all the time. And in our little town, in which no one was uh, educated, none of the, the parent, parents were went to college or there was no intellectual life. Came uh, a rabbi from New York, who was his first young rabbi, his first congregation. He couldn't find anybody to talk to. <laughs> in the entire congregation. So he decided that I was the one he was going to talk to. I was about nine years old, but for some reason... So, so we spent the next, uh, we spent the next uh, however many years it was, studying for my bar mitzvah. You know, five years maybe. We to, and afterward, because uh, he... And so we, we would study... Uh, it's really amazing to think about it, but we would read not only Jewish things, but we read, you know, like... Plato and Aristotle. I remember, I, can't, I was just thinking about this. He gave me to read, I must have been 12 years old, Moses and Monotheism by Freud, which is, which is a strange thing because, you know, in, in Moses and Monotheism, Freud explains how, you know, actually what really happened was something like this. What really happened was the Jews killed Moses because they were so pissed off at him for all of his you know, harshness. And then they made up the whole story of the Torah because they felt guilty about it. This is what it says in Moses and Monotheism. And why this rabbi was reading this with me, I don't really know. He was actually a faithful, very faithful uh, per, a Jewish person, but, but very intellectually active. Just to give you an idea of the kind of person he was, his brother is Jackie Mason, the comedian. Is his brother, and uh, he's just like Jackie. You know, he's the same restless, funny, very funny man. And and he's still alive, and I still know him, and I still visit him, and we're still friends. It's kind of delightful. Anyway, um, then but then when I got older, uh, he he the time that he left the community because he couldn't stay there very long. You know, he left the community at the same time that I got to be an adolescent and there were girls and there were sports and it must have taken me about five minutes to forget about religion. <laughs> I was busy, you know, and I was very engaged. And, uh, but then uh, when, I, when I went to college, uh, I think that my youthful, young, that, that young, dark, brooding boy, you know, kind of came back in the loneliness. It's very lonely and difficult, you know, to go to college. I feel for kids now who go to college. It's very hard, especially when you come from a little town. And I went away. I was very scared, you know, and all these smart people were there and I didn't know anything. And so I was very lonesome, and I think it made the, the youthful little boy come back. And I, and I realized that, uh, that uh, it was a very big problem that you die. This, to me, was a really big problem. And I think that's what my problem was when I was little. 
And so uh, that set me on a uh, trying to understand something about you know, what our life is. So I was studying philosophy and religion in college. And I stumbled onto the early books about Zen. This was in the days before there was no Vipassana movement, there was no Tibetan Buddhism, there was only, and there was no Zen movement, there, but there were a few books about Zen. That was all that I was aware of. And I, and I read them, and I thought, this is the greatest thing. Makes perfect sense. And I wasn't thinking of Zen as a religion, because like Sylvia, I just thought, well, I'm a Jew, that's that, that's that you know, so there's no religious problem, because uh, I'm just, I am what I am. But it never occurred to me that, that Judaism might have the answers to these questions that I was occupied with. It never even occurred to me. It was kind of like, why would you ask the Jews about this? Why, what would they know? You know? <laughs> they're, only, they're only Jews. They know how to, you know, we, they eat certain things and other things they don't eat. And there's certain holidays and they, they say words in a book and everything. But why would you, they don't know about this, you know. It's not that kind of a thing. They had their job, and I was busy with something else. So, so um, anyway, so I thought Zen was the greatest thing, and I became immediately a Zen person. Although I did, the, the books didn't mention that there was a practice. <laughs> this is the thing: the early books about Zen actually, D.T. Suzuki never mentioned, never mentioned that there was any such thing as Zen practice. So I, I thought I was doing Zen, even though I never practiced it. And to me, this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I marvel now that uh, uh, some of my colleagues uh, who are really about the same age as me, maybe a little bit older, went to Asia. To me, it was so obvious that, you know, uh, a Jewish boy from West Pittston can't go to Asia. You know what I mean? It, like, it never occurred to me. Like, go to Asia, it might be hard, but you can do it. It just it didn't occur to me because it wasn't something in my... You know, just impossible. Never thought about it. Asia was like it could have been the moon to me. Anyway, I bumped into somebody in Iowa City, Iowa, who said, "Oh yes, there's a Zen practice. You can uh, you can practice Zen in San Francisco. There's a Zen teacher there. You can there's a, there's something that they do. They sit like this." And I said, "Show me." And he showed me how to sit, and uh, it was very difficult, really hard. And I said, "Whoa, you know, way too hard for me." I said, "Besides, I'm too young now. I have to do things, and run, I have a certain amount of running around to do, and trouble to make, and I have to go in the streets and scream and yell. And there's a war on, and we can't have this war. And I'm busy. And but but someday I'm gonna." So it took me uh, about uh, two or three years past the time that I learned about the practice because I knew that I was going to go do it and I said I don't care what it takes I'm going to do this so I, I, came, I came to California I didn't know anybody California to me was the farthest possible place a human being <laughs> in my station could travel there was nothing beyond that and I, and I thought wow you know like I drove across the country from Iowa City to California I thought this is really far and, and when I got here I went right I looked up in the phone book Zen, you know, and, uh, and uh, I went to the Berkeley Zen Center where uh, I was taught how to sit Zazen, but I, I didn't, you know, I did not want to have anything to do with any religious things, so 
Once I learned how to do the practice, I just went off on my own and I did it. And I lived in the hills and the, and the, and the mountains of California and Redwood Forests and wherever anybody would give me a free place to live. And I lived like that, practicing on my own uh, and living alone and eating almost nothing and living very frugally like, like Henry David Thoreau, you know, for about three years. And then... Um, I was running out of money and running out of prospects. And I had had this uh, scholarship that uh, I was awarded that gave me free, uh, I could go to college for free plus get paid. And that's how I went to the University of Iowa. But there was more money to be had. Uh, And I always, my whole motive in life was how can I get through life without having to work? This was the whole idea. And just, you know. understand life and, and write and loaf and go for hikes and not have to work. So uh, going to school was a good way. <laughs> and they were paying me for it. So I realized I could go back to school and study Buddhism in school while I was practicing at the Zen Center. So that's what I did. I went back to university and I stayed there as long as the money held out. And uh, in the meantime, I had gone to Tassajara, the monastery of the Zen Center, and something about that place really moved me. And I said, okay, I'm going to go back to this place when I'm going to save up my money until I get enough money to go to this place, and I'm just going to stay here until someone kicks me out. And uh, that's exactly what I did, except that in the meantime, it's a long story, I had had a wife and two children. (laughs) So, so uh, we all went to Tassahara. Our infant twins and my wife and I, she was also a Zen student, and we met at the Zen Center, and we went there. We, so we, then after that, we just were in the Zen Center. We, we uh, were, spent five years in the monastery of Tassahara, and the next 20 or so years living semi-monastically at Green Gulch when it was time for the children to go to school. We left Tassajara. And somewhere along the line, uh, meantime, I was never, I never thought of myself as a member of the Zen Center or anything other than, like Sylvia, you know, a Jewish girl from Brooklyn. That's what I thought I was. (laughs) Just a Jewish girl from Brooklyn. (laughs) So, but then somewhere along the line, uh, one of, uh, of my my teacher said, uh, well, you have to, you know, you have to either leave the Zen Center now or get ordained as a priest. So this was, a, you know, a big shock to me. And, uh, and I knew I wasn't ready to uh, leave the Zen Center because I wasn't, my mind wasn't at rest. So I figured, well, if that's what it takes to stay here, then okay. So that's how I ended up getting ordained as a Zen priest. I don't know how I worked it out of my mind, but somehow I said, okay. And I, and I never thought that I was actually becoming a Zen priest, you see. Because everything is empty. I, I read it in the book, you know. <laughs> so, so I figured, you know, what's the problem? So I, I became a Zen priest and then uh, eventually uh, became uh, a fully qualified priest, which is a teacher, and... Uh, and I kept trying to escape from the Zen Center for about 10 years. I was constantly, because I, you know, then I finally was satisfied. I said, now I'm escaping. 
And every time I tried to escape, they said, could you please stay a little longer and do this? And I said, okay. And eventually I got, I got elected to be abbot. And I actually stayed there for maybe 10 or 15 years past the time I was ready to go because there kept being things that needed to be done. And, and I said, okay, I'll do this. Okay, I'll do that. Five years this. Okay, what's five years? Five more years, what's five years? And before I knew it, I was a lot older than I ever had been before. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in the year 2000, I, I had a very dramatic stepping down ceremony. I stepped down as Abbot of Zen Center. It was dramatic because about a week before I had a hernia operation. <laughs> So I was like, you know, you just put the idea is the, the old abbot is leaving, you know, he's decrepit and he can hardly, so I was like barely able to, you have to step, they build this, they build this platform in the temple, like you just, you just literally step up the mountain when you become abbot and you step down from the mountain when you, when you leave the abbacy, so I stepped down from the mountain, I had to be helped by a, a whole bunch of people. So I retired and, uh, and, uh, oh, then, uh, I have to back up a little bit. Uh, one of my uh, people that I met, I'm, I'm worse than Sylvia. I'm going on. <laughs> so I'll make this brief. Uh, <laughs> Just one more minute. <laughs> While I was pursuing Zen, I never thought about doing any Jewish things because I, you know, I was there. I wasn't a Zen monster. There's, you know, what am I going to do? So, but uh, when I was at the University of Iowa, I met a man who became, we became very good friends, and we kept up our friendship. And to make a long story short, we studied Zen together for about 10 years as colleagues and uh, living in the Zen center. And then he became a rabbi. So, uh, we would all, I said, that's really interesting that you became a That's great. And I would go visit him at the theological seminary and I would go pray with the rabbinical students and I would go to classes. And I thought this was the greatest thing I ever saw. You know, it was really wonderful. And it was his Zen practice that opened him up to his possibility of Judaism because he had not been religious like I was as a boy. So anyway, he eventually came to California to take over a congregation. And we said, well, let's, let's do things together. And we started... Uh, practicing together, and we so we uh, in 2000, right when I retired from the Zen Center, we opened up a Jewish meditation center in San Francisco, and so we started working on uh, Judaism, not Buddhism and Zen and, and Judaism, but Judaism with the meditation uh, as a as a background to it, as a way of doing what his experience had been, awakening himself to Judaism through the insight and the calmness and the sense of living that came from meditation practice. So uh, we've been doing that ever since. We've been doing it for about maybe 10, 12 years. And that's what brought me back toward an active uh, practice of Judaism through my relationship with my friend, and which you know uh, touched in me something. And I also feel, just like Sylvia, that I never left. You know, I didn't have this dramatic leaving and then coming back. You know, I still, I actually still feel exactly the same as ever. In other words, I still feel like this little boy 
who's looking out the window at this little tiny street, cars are going by, and I'm thinking, where did those cars come from? And where are they going, you know? And I still feel like I haven't changed one bit, you know, it's the same. So I don't feel as if I left something, I returned to something, I did something, I didn't do anything. I feel like I've just been in the same place uh, the whole time, trying to understand, you know, what's going on. So, that's my story. This is so much fun, I have to keep going a little bit. <laughs> I know, we could tell our stories. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to tell our spiritual stories, actually. And I'm having a lot of fun just listening. I wanted to add a couple of things, and I actually have a question for Norman and Sylvia, because what I remember doing when I was a child was sitting at the window and watching the light come through and all the dust motes. And I would watch those dust motes and I would think, I wonder if they're really entire worlds. Do you ever have that? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Sylvia's going to answer. Just one minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But I think that there are... I, I was just going to tell you, my cognate experience, I remember my friend Eleanor, because uh, I would lie in my bed and watch the dust... My friend Eleanor teased me. She said, "When do you, we were talking about what time we go to sleep. And she said, you go to sleep so early, you're a baby. You're like a sissy, you know. She was somehow, we were, I guess, getting to be teenagers. And I said, you know, I need that time. I, I said, oh, I go to bed, but I don't go to sleep. I said, I lie there because I need to let the day settle down before I can go to sleep. And I need the day to just sift through and make itself orderly. I have always been a contemplative, you know, and I knew what I needed. Uh, and yeah, so. But I had to prove that I was a real pro. Oh, I don't go to sleep. I lie there. I do something. <laughs> so one of the pieces of my story that I didn't tell you last night that came to mind when Norman was talking, <clears throat> and I think it was actually. Um, one of the most compelling parts of my own spiritual journey is that as I was in the bosom of this a-religious family, of course, all the questions come that come for children, right? And so somewhere along the line, I said to my mother or my father or both of them, um, Am I doing something? That um, <clears throat> I said, well, what, what happens when you die? And they said, well, you become nothing. That's it. You're done. It ends. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I can't see that it's working real well for my dad and as he's 90 or that it worked for my mother when she died at 86. But for a child of however old I was, when you asked that question, I don't know really how old you are, but pretty young, it was like it didn't compute. And so I would go to bed at night and lie there and try to imagine suddenly becoming nothing. And just scared myself silly because I couldn't quite imagine becoming Nothing, and I'd often get up and open the door so the light would come in so that I could prove that I wasn't nothing yet, anyway. And um, 
And that question has stayed. You know, that question doesn't go away until we die. And I actually came to, you know, for a long time I got older. I think it, it is what sent me then hunting around to talk to people who had some other opinions about human consciousness and the, you know, how the universe was put together and all of that. And so that is, I think, some of where my own personal search came from as I was this child going off to raise myself Roman Catholic. I like their ideas much better. Um, but, and then of course I did all the psychological work and spent time being angry at them because they did that to me. And, but now I actually feel like they gave me my first koan. You know, that, that, that is the koan, maybe, you know, really. And that it's the place that the mind goes up against over and over again and can't figure because we can't. And then some other answer emerges. And um, so it's really been what has, you know, kept me going in that direction. The other thing I wanted to say, having listened to these two, is that this a religious family of mine in Maine in the 50s was rather peculiar because everyone went to church. And people couldn't figure it out. So the rumor was that actually Orr is my maiden name, that our name really wasn't Orr, it was Oransky. And we went secretly to the temple on Friday night. And I actually rather liked that. I, I, and in many ways, we felt a lot closer to the Jewish community than to the um, Christian community, the Protestant Christian community, for sure. So, um, yeah. So, I was going to answer one of the questions that I felt that we, we took a few questions each that... Um, we maybe we're interested to answer, and then we may pull some out of the pot as well as if there's any time left once we're done telling our stories. So someone asked a question about um, all the bowing. You know, what is it that we bow to, or what is it that you bow to as you come up to the altar? And you've probably some of you noticed. You know, there are people who come here in here and bow, and there are people who don't. And some people bow when they come in and when they go out, and some people just bow when they come in, and some people bow like this, and some people get down on the floor, and I don't think we've had any full Tibetan prostrations here this week, but sometimes we get them, and so there's all kinds of different flavors of bowing, and so, you know, what is it, you know, bowing to her, or to him, or to the flowers, or what? It's interesting, you know, when, when I started doing Vipassana, one of my earliest retreats were at places like Yucca Valley and the Angela Center, just a few years after Sylvia started practicing. And in those days, you'd come into the hall and there was nothing up in the front. I mean, it was actually not even so common to have flowers. There was just nothing. There was no altar. There were no candles. Um, there were teachers who sat up in front. And that was it. There was just nothing. And... Um, Gradually, gradually, as the years have gone by, you know, it's like this community that started with this very stripped down form of Buddhist practice. It's almost like there's a hunger 
in the human nature for a certain amount of ritual and that kind of thing. And we do it, we all do it in various ways, you know, holidays and birthdays and all of that kind of things. Each one of us has our own form of ritual. And I happen to be somebody who really, really likes ritual. Um, so some years ago, I, I was not a bower. It didn't occur to me as a, in my Buddhist practice to bow. But then I was going through a spell um, at a time when I was stepping away from my work as a therapist and essentially giving that up, giving up my license and becoming a Buddhist teacher. And I was utterly confused because it felt like I was giving up my identity and if I wasn't a therapist, what was I? And maybe I was just going to be a housewife because you know, in the Buddhist teaching kind of world, you sort of float around and you teach, but then you don't do anything for a while, and then you teach, and you don't... And it was just confusing. I didn't know who I was, and I, and I, I was scared and upset. And, and so I decided what came up in my mind, I guess one could say I was led, was that I needed to bow. Because bowing somehow was putting, and I needed to do the full bow that you've probably all seen me do since I've been here, where I would kneel on the ground and put my head all the way to the floor because I just needed to do it. It felt like a surrender practice that I was giving over to something, to some movement in my life that was way bigger than my conscious ego. And so that's what I did. And I started bowing on a sort of a regular basis as I would start my sitting and that kind of thing in the morning. But then it started happening that, you know, sometimes I'd get up in the night to go to the bathroom and I would think, go bow. And I was like, what do you mean, go bow? And I was like, okay, go bow. So I would go and go bow in front of my altar and do my three bows and then I'd go back to bed and... Um, and it went on like that for a while, you know. That there would occasionally be orders to go bow, and I would go bow. And, and, and I bowed, and I had a little saying that, you know, I bow and surrender to the Buddha, I bow and surrender to the Dharma, I bow and surrender to the Sangha. So there was very consciously making it. Okay, so I did it as a surrender practice, and not that there was any particular thing up on the altar that I was bowing to. It had nothing to do with what was on the altar, or even if there was an altar. It didn't have to be an altar. And um, I suspect, maybe Norman can say a little about what he bows to, but it's, it's the, it's, it, it is the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and everything that that holds. So it's a pretty big teaching, I suppose you could say, that I bow to. Um, and bow, or the mystery that we talked about last night, that I bow to that mystery um, and really surrender to it because there's really no way that I can figure it out just like I can't figure out what happens when I die. I think that's all I need to say about that. So maybe one of you has one of your favorite questions.
Could you talk a little bit about ways of not identifying with the habit patterns that come up? And this is a really like a whole other topic, but um, it's come up in different interviews with different people, so it's worth a, a, something to say about the, um, what happens actually from paying attention to the mind and the way in, it be, in which it behaves. One of the ways of talking about this practice is uh, that as we begin to be clear about the habit patterns of the mind, it's possible that those patterns begin to change just because as you notice them, they don't drive you unconsciously in the same ways, but you can choose not to do it. Um, and as people have come in to see me and we've talked individually and I've shared, we each of us have different kinds of habit patterns. For reasons unbeknownst to me, I have a mechanism that I seem to have been born with or was installed, I think I was born with it, that uh, catastrophizes on practically anything. Uh, you know, and for a long time and through who knows how much psychotherapy, I imagined if I could figure out the etiology of that catastrophic mind, it would go away, but it doesn't go away. And even if I could figure out the etiology, there's no reason to think it would go away from figuring it. It's just a habit at this point. And I used to think it was because I had a, a frail mother who was sick, so I was, that's why I was worried about you know, living and dying. But some of my grandchildren inherited that gene, and their mothers are in the best of health, so who knows? <laughs> I actually think, it's, who knows, it's very mysterious why people have this worry or that worry or the voice that tells them uh, uh, you're no good, you're making a wrong decision. That's a different kind of voice, that doubtful voice or this is a catastrophe worry or but this is too hard for you, you can't do it or this isn't fair. People have any one of, uh, there are five really classical kinds of afflictive emotions that take over the mind and make habits. Uh, when I first became aware of the fact that not everybody made, uh, made a challenge into a catastrophe, which is a whole story that I won't tell, I, but I, knew, I met a woman who clearly looked at a situation that I would think, uh-oh, and she'd think, oh, this is a great adventure. And I so wanted to change minds with her. If you could have a mind transplant, that's what I wanted. And it then became soon clear to me that that wasn't going to happen, that we get the mind that we have with the programs that we have, and that what I could hope to do with meditation and attention was to decondition that habit from uh, taking over my mind and governing what happened, so that the place in the pattern of the place in the sequence of responses needs to be for me the moment in which, given whatever stimulus, my mind says, uh-oh, this is a catastrophe, and the body and the mind are about to make adrenaline and run with it, to really notice that moment and say, wait a minute, this is the pattern of your mind, this might not be true, this is the lens that you see through. And with, it would be great if you say you do that once, it deconditions it. That was not my experience. What is my experience is that over time, not giving it air time, not feeding it, and recognizing it, causes it to take hold of the mind less frequently. I was telling somebody today, 
I, I went from uh, say, oh, or I'm thinking about something else, to say, oh, there it is. Now, wait a minute, it, it's never true. It's probably not true. I'll wait 15 minutes before I worry. To now being able mostly to be able to say, oh, look, it's doing it again, that same habit. That's so interesting. Look what God made, you know. If you have a round cookie cutter, it makes round cookies. It never makes square cookies. My mind is going to make round cookies for the rest of its life, and it's my business to be able to notice it making those cookies and in a sense celebrate it. One of the things that's been fun to do is to be able to say when I get frightened about what, you know, just life, to say to myself, isn't that amazing? I have a black belt in catastrophizing. I'm so good at that. You know, I really, it's probably why I got, I'm a good storyteller. I can invent anything out of anything. Who could make such a, possibly make such a big catastrophe out of no material at all? You know? So in, instead, of, in, so instead of giving myself a bad time, more, what hath God wrought? Look at this. It's so interesting. So I think it's a question of over time seeing this is not me. This is a habit that's become an ingrained habit, but uh, we can change habits. That's the great good news. That what, that's what it means, the sure heart's liberation. Thank you for the question. Go, Norman. I need a five-minute question. Well, I'd like to... Um, there were a few little small one-word answer questions that came. Uh, so I want to... First of all, somebody says, um, I would like a copy of the Pardes poem that I read. And there was a couple of people who mentioned that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on my website. So that's how I'm going to get around having to get a hold of all you and Xerox or email or whatever. So the Everyday Zen website is everydayzen.org. Some people also gave me notes about my schedule and my activities, and so that's also on the Everyday Zen website, everydayzen.org. And if you Google my name, you'll get that website. And I, I keep a, uh, a blog on the website, and I'm going to put the poem in the blog. So if you click on, on the bottom of the website, it'll say weblog. If you click on that, you'll get uh, the poem which is, will be the la- I'll do it this next week. It'll be the latest entry, and you'll get also some really amazing other entries if you want to go uh, backwards. Some, I, I tell all in this blog. Yeah, so that's the uh, there. Uh, okay, then, okay, these others are uh, all kind of similar. Uh, I got all the God ones. I have, so I have a bunch of different God uh, questions. Um, this one says, uh, and this one was specifically uh, addressed to me, I'm curious, is it unusual for the Abbot Emeritus of the San Francisco Zen Center to have an, a, quote, active theistic practice? End quote, which must be taken from some something that was written about me. Maybe even the description of this. Yeah. What does it say? Is it usual? Is it, is it unusual? And what, what form does it take? Yes, it's unusual. 
And I, I think I already indicated, you know, what form it takes that, <laughs> that I do. Uh, we, in the Jewish Meditation Center, we do prayer practice. We, we do uh, tra- very traditional things uh, combined with meditation. So, and I often, uh, in my daily practice at home, uh, nowadays, after 25 or 30 years practicing with every single day with lots and lots of people, I practice now very quietly by myself, which is really delightful, actually. And um, sometimes I uh, say Jewish prayers, conventional, ordinary Jewish prayers. Uh, And I'm not uh, one who, uh, I I don't know, like, um, there's some people who have, I guess, what would would you say, more uh, philosophical than devotional. So I don't have a powerful emotional sense of God that some people may have. And I appreciate that, and I, and I see the virtue in it, and I, and I, see it's, I think it's wonderful. But I, that's just not my uh, uh, way. But uh, I do, uh, and I think mostly th- through my work in poetry, have a sense of a presence to whom one is addressing oneself. Uh, in, in the introduction to the Psalms book, I talk about that. I say, you know, I, I thought about it one time. Who am I writing my poems for? Not that many people read my poems, you know. Not, not a lot of people. And so I'm not, I'm not writing for a public. And to some extent, I'm writing for my colleagues. I write for other poets, and, you know, and my poetry is mostly read by other poets. But I'm not really writing for them either. You know? So I thought, who am I writing for? Who am I addressing this poem to? And I realized that I'm addressing this poem, this writing in the poem, is being addressed to, well... <laughs> I don't know, you know, some big space that I'm calling out to in the poem. And I feel that very palpably, you know, that, that, that is why I, I have to keep addressing that space. I, that's a need, that's a human need that I have, and that I think maybe many people have. And so uh, it's immaterial to me whether you want to call that God or not. I mean, when people ask me, what is God, I always answer precisely God is a three-letter word in the English language. That's exactly what God is. And uh, that word has many associations for many people. For some people, it's a very negative word. It conjures up you know, this sort of mean-spirited, nasty guy, and it's always a guy up in the sky who hurls thunderbolts when you don't behave yourself and so on. Uh, for other people, the word God is a tender word and an intimate word. It's, it's a word. That, that stands for a whole range of positive and negative experiences in the lives of many, many people. So what's important to me is not the word. Uh, I, can, I can speak about God happily, and I often do, uh, but what's important to me is the range of human experience, uh, human religious experience. Uh, and there's a big range, and we're all different. And just like, as Sylvia was just saying, we all have different lunacies, we also all have different ways of accessing this big space. So, uh, then somebody wrote, and I'll finish with this and pass it on to Mary. And this is really lovely. I just want to share this. Is God waiting for me as the Father waited for and welcomed the prodigal son? I believe this, and so how do I get out of the wilderness? How do I come home? I sit on the cushion, but my mind keeps creating the wilderness. 
Am I trying too hard? Is the way home easier than I imagine? When I quit struggling, will the quiet, sunlit path through the woods lead out into the meadow of God? Isn't that wonderful? And there's no need to answer that, right? Because the answer is already in the question, isn't it? Whoever, and it's an anonymous question, so whoever wrote this question, I'm sure you know this. So the thing about the wilderness is, it's the wilderness. <laughs> you know, if you could push a button and make the wilderness not be the wilderness anymore, we would all be pushing those buttons. <laughs> but the wilderness is the wilderness, and God brings you out of the wilderness at the right time, just as you already know. The person who wrote this note, I'm sure, has faith that that's so. That question reminds me a little of what I was talking about last night with the practice of yearning. In the yearning is the answer. So there was a question that that, um, came. It said, in last night's prayers, there were both personal and political prayers expressed. Could you address the relationship between Buddhist practice trying to accept what is among other goals, and political, social activism, trying to change things like social injustices, militarism, and wars, etc. I find these two purposes and practices hard to mesh, but I have a strong desire to do both. In my Christian tradition, there is no conflict here, but I feel a tension between Buddhist practice and political activism. This question seems important because it's one that comes a lot here um, as we sit doing our best to be present with whatever is, whether it's inner war or outer war. And um, so there's several things to say, but one of the things that's true, and probably all of you have noticed it even here this week, is that when we sit still with ourselves, being present with our experience, we often discover our suffering, right? And so each of you, in this, even in this few days, have felt, I'm sure, some of your own suffering. And sometimes it's been even suffering that you didn't really know was there, or you saw it, in a way that you had never seen it before, or you felt it more deeply than you've ever felt it before, even if it's suffering that you already knew you had, or some difficulty that you already knew you had. And this is really important, because when we take the time and the space to sit still with our suffering, then often... um, it becomes apparent that it's perhaps important to begin to do something about that suffering. There's no place in Buddhist teaching that says, okay, sit with your suffering and just sit with your suffering for the rest of all time because, and just let it get worse and worse and worse and don't do anything else. There's no teaching that says that. But it's very important to be present with it. So in the same way, it's very important to be present with the suffering of the world to take the time to sit with it. 
And so I often suggest to people, you know, cut out pictures from the newspaper or sit there in front of the TV screen and really take some of those images in, you know, and let them. They tear your heart apart, but that's all right, you know. Hearts break, but, you know, like that poem, you know, my heart is broken open, you know. So that breaking open is hugely important. And out of that breaking open and the time spent sitting with the pain, then some skillful response can begin to arise. That's important because if we don't take the time, sometimes we're reacting. And when we react, it's not always so skillful. And then, you know, if, and we all know the kind of situation where even people who are trying to support justice and peace end up being participants in another war with the people who want the war that they began fighting about. So then you have two wars, and, um, and it gets nasty. So how to, how to be present with a situation so fully that um, we know what is skillful? So a couple of things to say. One is, I've been really happy in the last year or so to spend a little time um, looking at and contemplating some of the images of the wrathful deities in Tibetan practice. And these guys are great. You know, they're big and they're different colors and they have bulging eyes and they have fangs and claws and blood and skulls. And they're the wrathful or the ferocious, if you will, I I do like the word ferocious, um, dimension of things like compassion. Imagine a a ferocious dimension of compassion where it it has a protective kind of sense and that that those energies can, can look like that as protections for ourselves or our practices or for other beings. So that's one piece. <clears throat> the second piece is that I've never been an Aikido practitioner, probably some of you are, so if I'm wrong in this, I'm happy to stand corrected. Um, but I've known a number of people. And so what I've been told is that in Aikido, as you prepare for the opposing energy to come toward you, one of the things that you do is to get really big to really have some sense of yourself becoming very vast and very spacious so that as this opposing energy comes towards you, you can take it in and move you and it, move the whole system into a safe place. That's a very interesting image. And my sense is that that's what we want to do socially that as difficult energies come toward us, that we are present enough and mindful enough and aware enough to be able to open and to absorb that energy and to move it, whether as an individual or as a community, to a safe place. So I think that's how, in the Buddhist world, we work with both stillness and action. Um, 
So maybe that's a good place to stop. I don't know. It's we're well over. Yeah, we'll we'll have walking practice. Let's have the it's let's have the bell for the end of the walk right at nine o'clock, and bring us back in, and then we'll sit and chant. So you'll have about a twenty-minute walking. That'll give you a chance to get some air and move and and um, some stillness before we come back in for our final sitting of the day. So thank you for all of your questions, and especially thank you for those of you who sent questions in that we haven't answered yet. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 6, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.